So we're, we're working on a series called Absolutes. And we're also in conjunction for those who have been in the foundation class for the past five weeks. Basically, this fall at Genesis, we are going back to basics. Basics. What is the foundation of our faith? Here is why. In the book of Proverbs, it says this. Disaster strikes like a cyclone, and the wicked are whirled away. But the good man has a strong anchor. In this world of wishy-washy, in this world where we face crises and we face things that kind of blow us all over, we need to make sure that what we are holding onto, we know what that is. It doesn't move. It's going to keep us safe. It's going to keep us strong. And so today, we are moving to the next part of our statement of beliefs, and that's what we've been going through for the past month. Okay, so we've talked already about God, okay? We've talked already about the Bible. Last week, Dad talked about salvation. And all joking aside, if you weren't here or you didn't see it, I really want to encourage you, check it out. It was a great word for all of us, no matter how long we've been a Christian for. Go to our YouTube channel, Genesis Church Ally is the best place to watch um, our teaching videos. And today we are going to move on, and today we are coming to Jesus. And here's what it says in our statement of faith about Jesus. It says this, about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity, who united with a true human nature by a miraculous conception and virgin birth. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father and voluntarily atoned for the sins of all by dying on the cross as their substitute, thus satisfying divine justice and accomplishing salvation for all who trust in him alone. He rose from the dead in the same body, though glorified, in which he lived and died. He ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, where he, the only mediator between God and man, continually makes intercession for his own. He will come again to earth, personally and visibly, to consummate history and the eternal plan of God. Whoa. There's a lot there. I feel like I need a Webster's Dictionary, not uh, the other one. Okay, so... Here's what I want to do today is this. I want to take that paragraph there and that passage there, and I want to break it down truly. We're going back to basics today, teaching today. Break it down into five different parts that it says. So the first one is this. Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity who united with a true human nature by a miraculous conception and virgin birth. Technology is crazy now when it comes to babies. I, I've seen some stuff. I mean, even from when I had my son 22 years ago, how things have changed. And the other day I saw, and you may have seen it too, that over in the UK at the University of Durham, they did this research study. Durham is most famously known as the birthplace of Charlotte Blackmore, in case you are worrying, wondering, okay? So the University of Durham, they did this study. And what they did is they took these mothers who were pregnant, and they used 4D ultrasound technology. And they looked at the babies in their womb between 32 and 36 weeks of development, still inside their moms. 
And they used this technology and they watched these babies. And one set of moms they gave carrots to. And they watched these babies and they smiled. And you could see it on the, with the technology. Then the other set of moms they gave kale to. <laughs> and they watched these babies grimace as the kale got to them. Now, just as, as an aside, do not tell me that babies are a clump of cells until their mom gives birth. They know, while still inside their moms, that kale is disgusting. What more do you need? And can you imagine how happy these babies are? And in fact, I'm hoping they follow them when they find carrot cake as opposed to just carrots. Like, that's gonna be the best day ever for them. But here's the thing, with all this technology we have now, it actually can't beat what happened here in the Bible. Because 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah actually foretold that he was gonna be born. It said, Isaiah 4, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. Now, in case there was any doubt as to whether this was actually applied to Jesus or he, um, this was talking about Jesus, the angel Gabriel actually repeated that verse when he went and spoke to Mary and said, Mary, you're going to have a son. He repeated that verse. You see it in the book of Matthew. Okay? So here we have Jesus taking on a human form, fully man born as a baby, but actually that wasn't technically his birth because he had always existed before time began. All right, John 1, 1 says this, in the beginning the word already existed, the word was with God, and the word was God. Okay, for those who were in foundations class this week, we were talking about the Trinity. And this is kind of where that comes into play, okay? So Jesus comes, he's born as a baby, takes on human form, he's here on earth. He took on all the things that you and I do. He got hungry, he got thirsty, he got tired, he got angry, he made friends, he cried when his friend died, he got anxious towards the end. He took on all those emotions that make you and I human. He was fully human here on earth. So why was it so important that he had a virgin birth? Two things. It was necessary for the Savior to be born of a woman so that he would be the same nature as those he came to save. He was one of us. Only one of us could save us. There he was. He is fully God, however, conceived by the Holy Spirit, because no mere human is qualified to redeem sinners from their sins. And we'll get, back, we'll get to that in our next point. He was completely human. He had to have a virgin birth so that he could be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Can I just say this? A lot of all of this stuff gets really, really, really confusing. And sometimes we say, you know, I just don't understand it. I just don't get it. That's okay. I don't think there is anybody here on earth, despite whatever they may tell you, who fully understands everything in here. 
But that's okay. We just have faith. You know what, God, you wrote this. You know what you're doing. You know this is true. So I'm going to leave what I don't understand in your hands. He was born a virgin birth. The second thing was this. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. The world we live in right now is strange in that this. We know the lives inside and out of every famous person there is. A lot of it due to social media and stuff like this. I mean, arguably, the most famous family in this country does not actually reside on Pennsylvania Avenue. They're somewhere stretched out across uh, Los Angeles. And the reason they are so famous is they have literally allowed cameras into their lives so that we know every single thing about them, where they live, what they drive, where they shop, what they wear, their ups and downs of the relationships. We know everything about them. And there is such a opposite, it's so opposite when it comes to Jesus in this. Inarguably, the most famous person in all of history, actually, we know very little about. Okay? So, in here was his birth. We just talked about his virgin birth. And in a few weeks, we're going to start celebrating the time of the season of his birth. Okay? Unless you like Hallmark movies, and we started two nights ago, but that's just a different story. Okay? So, we celebrate, we know about his birth. And then there is nothing about him until he is 12 years old, okay? 12 years old, he goes to the temple, and famously, his parents lose him for three days. Can you imagine? Like, your biggest parenting fail is in the most famous book ever. Like, I hate, sometimes my, my kids will put something on Facebook and I'll be embarrassed by it, but imagine being them and having it in here. So we know about him when he was 12, that one little incident. And then we hear nothing else about him until he's 30 and he goes to be baptized by John the Baptist. The most famous man in history, actually, we only know a very short segment of his life. Why? There was no razzle-dazzle. He didn't need everybody to know all of his business. He just came to do what God told him to do and what God wanted to do. He didn't look for fame and glory. In fact, a lot of the people he healed and he did miracles, he said to them, don't tell anybody. He wasn't in it for the fame and for the glory, right? He also didn't do one other things that we as humans do plenty. He never sinned. We sin a lot. Okay, there's two of you in this church that tell the truth. Okay? We all sin a lot. He never did that. See, if Jesus was to die as our substitute, if he was to be sacrificed for us and for our sins, the one essential requirement was this. He had to be sinless himself. He couldn't have any sin. And here's the thing. He had plenty of opportunity. He lived as a human. He felt what we felt. He was tempted like we can be tempted. In fact, if you look in Matthew 4, you will see right after he was baptized, he goes to live in the desert for 40 days, and he had a one-on-one -on -one encounter with the devil himself 
trying to tempt him and trying to get him to sin, okay? There is only one devil, so there's a very good chance that you and I have never actually encountered the devil. Some of his army, but probably not. So Jesus actually had full devil experience and still did not sin. Hebrews 4, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses since he had the same temptations we do, though he never once gave way to them and sinned. And his, central, his sinless life is central to the message of salvation. Under the Old Testament system of sacrifice, an animal would be sacrificed for sin. That was what was given to atone for the sins of people. But there was a qualification for that animal, and it tells us about it in Deuteronomy. It says this, Do not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep that has no defect, that has any defect or flaw in it, for that would be detestable to him. So any animal, for it to qualify as an animal that could be sacrificed for their sins, for the things they had done, had to be without blemish, had to be without a flaw. For you and I, to be atoned of all the sins that we have done and all the wrongs that we have done, there had to be a sacrifice made. That sacrifice had to be somebody without blemish or flaw when it comes to sin. His sinless, blameless life lived in complete obedience to God the Father meant that he alone could be sacrificed for our sins. Nothing else would do. He had to be completely blameless and flawless. And that's what Jesus did for us. So he lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. And that meant he resisted temptation and he did not sin. Thirdly, he voluntarily atoned for the sins of all by dying on the cross as their substitute thus satisfying divine justice and accomplishing salvation for all who trust in him alone. So we just established, okay, we have all sinned, despite the fact only a couple of you fessed up to it, okay, I know we have all sinned in here, okay? And the consequences of sin is death. Romans 6.23, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We were all headed for judgment. We were all headed for condemnation. That was the only thing that could happen due to the things that we had done. Eternal death was what was before us until God himself gave us a gift. A gift. He sent his son, Jesus, into this world. The most famous Bible verse of all, of course, refers to that. And if you are watching any football games today, there is a very good chance in some end zone somewhere, you will see the reference to it. John 3, 16, okay? For God so loved the world, us, he gave a gift, his only Son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him 
shall not perish, but have eternal life. See, Christ died in my place. Christ died in your place. Christ died for each of us. The thing I could never do myself, the thing you could never do myself, was to wipe my slate clean. Couldn't have done it. Couldn't do it. There was no way for that to happen. But Jesus Christ established and achieved that for us. Even on our best days, on our best behavior, even following the Bible word for word, I could never achieve what he did for me. See, Jesus himself knew exactly what the path ahead of him entailed. He knew. He was part God, part human. He knew what was coming ahead. He had that. He effectively volunteered, gave his life for each and every one of us. Matthew 20, 28 says this, for the son of man came not to be cared for. He came to care for others. He came to give his life so that many could be bought by his blood and made free from the punishment of sin. Hey, last week um, in dad's message, um, there was a point that he made, and I just kind of want to go back to it. And dad last week talked about predestination, called, justified, glorified. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. A lot of big words. So um, yeah, I'm only going to explain one of those today. I want to come back to justified. See, here's, what does it mean for me to be justified? And here is a very easy definition for you. Justified means it's just as if I had never sinned. Christ Jesus came and justified me, which meant it took me from where I was to the place as if I had never, ever sinned. I moved from the state of sin to the state of grace. What does that mean? It means he became the piece of the puzzle that was needed for me to spend eternity with God. It means that my belief in him, my faith in him, allows me to have a relationship with God. That's all I need to do. There is no trick here. There is no hard exam to see if you can qualify to be entered into a relationship with God. There is absolutely nothing I can do except for one thing. What is that one thing? In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in jail. There's an earthquake, and the jail is reduced to rubble, and the jail comes in, and he's very nervous because he thinks, you know what, these are my... um, VIP prisoners, and I'm sure they've escaped, and I'm going to be in big trouble for this. And then he walks in, and of course, Paul and Silas are still sitting there. They had gone nowhere. And the jailer says to them, what do I need to do to be saved? And here is what they said to him. They replied, Acts 16, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Can I just say this today? If you are sitting here today and you don't know within a shadow of a doubt, without a shadow of a doubt, where you are spending eternity, I want to encourage you, today's the day to fix that. It's not something small we're messing with here. It is 
forever and ever and ever. And today, if you're saying, you know what, but what do I need to do? Here's what you need to do. Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. There's no class to take. There's no exam to take. There's nothing you can do, no act for you to have to do. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The fourth thing part is he rose from the dead in the same body, though glorified, in which he lived and died. He ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, where he, the only mediator between God and man, continually makes intercession for his own. When it comes to the number of people on our planet who follow a religion, there are four major religions in our world today. The fourth biggest is Buddhism. In 483 BC, Buddha died. I didn't know this part until I was researching this week. He ate spoiled meat. If I'm going to follow somebody, I want them to be smart enough not to eat spoiled meat, but that's just me. Uh, he ate spoiled meat, and his remains were believed to have been found a number of years ago in China. The number three religion in the world is Hinduism. Hinduism actually has no one founder. There is nobody you can pull it back to. Hinduism is a fusion of various beliefs. They pick and choose. Oh, I like that one. I like that one. Oh, we'll go with that one. That's what Hinduism is. Number two religion in the world is Islam. In 632 AD, Muhammad died. His grave is considered the second holiest Islamic state in the world after Mecca and is visited every year by millions of followers. The number one, and sometimes we need to remember. Hello? Okay. <laughs> the number one religion in the world, and we do need to remember this at times, is Christianity. More people are Christians in our world than any other religion. And sometimes forget, we forget the power that we have because we feel a bit like the underdog. Oh no, we're the overdog, okay? We got this, there's more of us than anybody else. In 33 AD, we do, we do, we play, for, we play defense and we should be playing offense. We should be going for it, not thinking they're all against us, we gotta make sure they don't score. They're not going to. We got the numbers and we got God. What else do we need? All right, but in 33 AD, Jesus Christ died. And the place that they laid his body is one of the most visited places in Israel today. But there is a difference. There's nobody there. It's empty. There is no one in his tomb. It's not a grave. It's a place people visit where Jesus spent a few days. Okay? He just was there for a few days, kind of like the Airbnb you've stayed in. You were there for a bit. Now you're not there anymore. Okay? He is not there. After witnessing the grotesque crucifixion of Jesus, his mother Mary and some of the other ladies who, who were his followers, of course, went back to visit the tomb where his body, they assumed, was. They, Jesus' body had been wrapped up and laid in, and they find the stone that had sealed the entrance, a sizable stone, had been rolled away. And two angels were sitting inside with the pile of grave clothes. And of course, the ladies 
were a little worried and wondered what had happened and assumed that somebody had stolen Jesus' body. And here is what the angel says to them. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come see where his body was lying. Not there anymore. No longer there. So why is it so important for us that Jesus was resurrected? See, if he had come and lived and died and his grave was his final resting place, he would have been no better than some of those others that I just named. He would have been a good man, lived a good life, taught some really great thing, helped some people. But you know what? Jesus is set apart because he not only died a martyr's death, he was raised to life. Romans 1.4, by being raised from the dead, he was proved to be the mighty son of God with the holy nature of God himself. His resurrection proved that he was indeed the son of God, which qualified him to save us from our sins. Back to point one, okay? Only the son of God could come and, and save us from our sins. It gave him alone the power to justify us. Back to point four, okay? Only he could justify us because only he was the son of God. How did he prove he was the son of God? He came back from the grave. Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification so that we could get to the place where it was just as if we never sinned. Romans 5.1 says this, therefore, since we have been justified, that is, acquitted of sin, declared blameless before God by faith, let us grasp the fact that we have peace with God and the joy of reconciliation with him through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed. If anybody needed any more proof, past virgin birth, lived a sinless life, died on a cross for people who yelled at him and threw things at him and wanted nothing to do with him, here was the final piece of the puzzle, and that was this. He was resurrected from the dead. How do you know he's God's son? The resurrection. Final point is this. I'm not going to have to say I did this. I uh, will finish this next week, just thought I'd mention. Huh? Hmm? Final point is this. I really am fired today. He will, <laughs> he will come again to earth personally and visibly to consummate history and the eternal plan of God. Jesus for himself foretold what was going to happen. Actually, you know, halfway through his time on earth, John 14, one through three said this, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Okay? So not only was Jesus on earth once, he's coming back again. Now, can I just say this? Because there's a lot of craziness in this world, and, and this seems to have made it like 10 times worse. Nobody knows when that time is going to be. Nobody knows. Doesn't matter what the sundials are doing or what, you know, the pyramids, this, that. Nobody knows what is happening. In fact, 
Matthew 24, Jesus himself says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So even Jesus in his human form on earth did not know when he was coming back again. Only God knew that. Again, it goes back to that whole Trinity thing and can be a little confusing, but let's, he didn't know when he was coming back again. Jesus' first time on earth ended in death. Jesus' first time on earth ended with the world saw him or the people there saw him being crucified. The second time that he comes back again, it will not end. In fact, Paul lays out exactly what's going to happen in his letter to the Thessalonican church, okay? To a church that was in the midst of persecution, and he lays out exactly what is going to happen when Jesus comes back again. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 10. And here's what he says. And God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted. And also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Bringing judgment on those who don't know God. And on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. When he comes on that day, he will receive glory from his holy people. Praise from all who believe, and this includes you. For you believed what we told you about him. So here Paul actually lays out eight steps of what is going to happen when Jesus comes back. And this is where the clock thing might get dicey because I'm about to give you eight points, okay? Eight things. Let me just say this. If you go into your new uh, version app, go to events, I put them all in there for you. So I'm gonna have to go through them pretty fast. But if you wanna go back and look at it, go to the new um, version and it's gonna be in there. Number one, it says this in verse seven, Jesus will be revealed. This time around, there's not going to be a manger in a stable in an inn, in the backwoods, where nobody knows where he is or knows what is happening. He's not going to be hidden from sight this time around. Everyone will know Jesus is coming back. The second thing is this. Jesus will descend. Verse 10. Again, he will not be born this time. He is going to come down from earth. His glorified body allows him to move through space, and that's what he's going to do. Number three. Jesus will return with mighty angels, okay? They will come to show his glory and to help to gather his chosen ones. Number four, Jesus will come in flaming fire, verse eight. He will come to enact justice. All the wrongs that have ever been done in the history of the world will receive their just sentence, okay? Not up to you and me, much as we would like it to be. One day, justice will prevail, okay? Second coming is an act of judgment and justice. Number six, Jesus will judge those who do not know him yet. Verse eight, two categories of people that were listed here are those who don't know God and those who refuse to obey the gospel, okay? Those who haven't heard and those who have heard but have not believed. Number seven, Jesus will banish those who reject him punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from God and his glorious power. That's in verse nine. And then finally, Jesus' saints will marvel at him, verse 10. 
The ultimate purpose of the second coming is found in verse 10. He's coming to receive glory from his holy people and praise from all who believe. All of those steps are coming when he comes again. And so today, here's what I wanted to just end with is this. Which side will you be on when he comes again? Jesus was born. He lived a sinless life. He was crucified. He was resurrected. And he's coming again because he wants to spend an eternity with you. So on that final day of judgment, don't be someone who's banished from his sight. Don't be somebody who is in the corner with those who have heard and have not believed. Don't be somebody who just never took that next step of saying, you know what, I hear and I believe that he is the Son of God. Today is the day, October 23rd, 2022, whether you are sitting in this room or you're listening to me on camera right now, today's the day where you say, you know what, I need to settle eternity. I need to make sure I know where I'm going. I'm not messing around anymore. I need that I need that I need to have the confidence that I will be together with God again one day. Even if you have any question, today is the day to firm that up. And so I want to encourage you, where do you stand today? Let's pray.